everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. If you have your Bibles, hopefully you still have marked the book of Genesis chapter 3 where we have had the basis for this series called Church Lies. And if you'd like to know where we're having our text today, it will be the, be the book of John, chapter 16, verse 31. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 is where we have been beginning the conversation of this series on Church Lies. And then John chapter 16, verse 31, starting in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. We may eat of any of the trees, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows in the day that you eat of it. Your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her. Go ahead, if you have it, march over to the book of John chapter 16, verse 31. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have troubles, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. I've enjoyed this series we've been dealing with because everybody has grown up with church lies. Maybe not the same ones that I've grown up with, but everybody has grown up with a bunch of things that have been preached to us from the pulpit or taught to us in Sunday school or taught to us in children's church or said to us by someone in the church who loves us. That's the problem with all of this. The church lies that most of us buy into, that we've heard all of our lives, that become ingested and become a part of our psyche and our soul, that make neural pathways through our brain that are so hard to break are hardly ever given to us in malice. They are almost always presented to us in an attitude of being helpful or of in mercy or of grace. And all the time, we never really realize that what Satan does when he just hears a small misspoken word is he rushes into that piece of information that was misspoken that God never said or God never intended and he uses it so that he can unravel everything else in our life. We see that in the Garden of Eden. Satan comes up to Eve and he just begins a conversation. Did did God really say that you'll die? That's all he wants to know. He wants to know, is this what God said? Now, he knows what God said. He knows the word of God better than any of us have ever known or will know the word of God. He understands it from cover to cover because he used to stand in front of the fullness of the glory of God, leading worship unto God. And so he understands the heart of God better than any of us ever will because of where he once stood. And so he comes to Eve and says, did God really say this? And Eve says, yes. God said we can eat anything we want, but we can't eat of this tree. Had she stopped there, had she just stopped at that part where she says, God said, don't eat of this specific tree 
or will die. Had she only said what God had expressly said, then Satan would have had a more difficult conversation on his hands because he lunges at every misspoken word. That's why the Bible says the power of life and death is in the tongue because if you speak what God said, it's life. If you take what he said and you manipulate it or you misspeak it or you misquote it or you misrepresent it, what it brings with it is death. And she says, God said, don't eat it, don't touch it or we die. And Satan looks at her and says, I'm so glad you said that. God knows that you won't die if you do any of that. He knows that it's good to make you wise. He knows that the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Now here's the thing. Eve was not trying to be malicious when she said, don't touch the tree. She probably did what many of us do when we understand something in the Bible. We see that God sets out a mandate, or God says there are things that you can do to draw closer to him. And in a sincere and honest heart, what we end up doing is we go a little bit beyond what he said. Is there anything wrong with that? No. There's nothing wrong to try and go beyond what God has said in an attempt to please and honor him. The problem comes in when what we do that's a little bit more in our lives, we try and turn it into what God has said for everyone. What we end up doing is we create rifts in the word of God. God said, Eve, don't eat it. Eve said, all right, God, if I'm not supposed to eat it, then I won't even touch it. Because if eating it is going to kill me, then why would I tempt myself by going over to it and touching it? Why would I make things more difficult on myself by going over to it and taking a piece of fruit? Even if I'm not going to die because I touched it, even if I can go ahead and lean against the trunk of that tree and enjoy its shade, even if that is perfectly legitimate, God, why would I make things more difficult on myself if you said don't eat it rather than that God I'll just stay completely away from it now there's nothing wrong with that in fact it sounds like for Eve she was making a wise decision and she said I'll not touch it so that I don't end up eating it but the problem is she ended up making her decision to honor God being the same thing as what God had said how many times have we done that? You want to know all the time that we do that? I'll give you the best example. I think my favorite church lie was the first one I preached, and it was God will not give you anything more than you can bear. First of all, that phrase, while being in the Bible, has nothing to do with life. It has everything to do with sin. In the context of that verse, it simply means that when you're being tempted, when there is a sin that has gripped you or it feels that it has seized your soul and it feels so overwhelming that you are unable to escape from it, God says, I will never let there be a temptation in your life that first of all is uncommon it will always be something common to everybody and second of all any temptation that shows up I will always make sure you are able to withstand it by my grace and I will always make sure that there is an avenue of escape now that is wonderful news that I am not obligated to sin that I am not so enslaved to it that every time it shows up I have to do it but what we've done with that phrase God will not give you more than you can bear we've thrown it into the rest of the life We've said, well, if God won't give me more than I can bear in sin, then he won't give me more than I can bear in life. You understand that that's absolute asininity? Because Jesus, when he is standing in the beginning of his first sermon ever, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, you want to know what he says? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You want to know what poor in spirit is? Bankrupt. You want to know what that means? You're not good enough or strong enough to make it through life on your own. 
The whole premise of coming to God, the whole premise of needing a Savior, the whole premise of a Savior stepping down from glory and coming to us is because there is nothing in this life that I can survive on my own. We try and make it sound as though if I was a better Christian, I can make it through this. If I was just more in love with God, he must know how strong I really am. Let's be clear. You're not strong. That's why Paul said, in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. God will gladly let there be item after item and scenario after scenario that is far in excess of what you will ever be able to bear because in that unbearable circumstance he is the one that can rush in and be the fortress around me he is the one that can stand in and be a bulwark against everything that's trying to consume me but then we end up beating ourselves up shaming ourselves god you won't give me more than i can bear here so you must we've got to stop trying to speak on behalf of god and just start saying what he's already said This has nothing to do with today's sermon, but let me give you just a little bit of tidbit. You want to know why sometimes your prayers aren't answered? Because you're not praying back to God what he's already said he's going to do. God, I need my finances fixed. All right. Will a man rob God? How has a man robbed me? You've robbed me in your tithes. Bring all the tithe into my storehouse, that my house may be full, and see that I will not pour out a blessing on you which you cannot contain, and I will rebuke the devourer. Inflation's pretty rough right now, isn't it? I'm not doing very well. Listen, I'm not asking for a raise. You pay me very, very well, but I have a second job because inflation has gotten out of hand. I filled my truck the other day, $70, four years ago. You want to know what it costs to fill my truck? $40. I just have to go less places. I'm thinking about getting one of those smart cars, whatever I can do so that I get 70 miles to the... If you want to see your prayers answered, start doing things God's way, and then when you go to ask God for something, just say what he's already said. God, I need peace in my life. All right, think on these things. Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are noble. What's you want? When we start adding or taking away from what God has already said, what we do is we open an avenue for Satan to rush in, manipulate what we think is the word, and through that he unravels all of it. Now listen, if Adam and Eve who were perfect, and please don't misunderstand, he was lying to Adam just as much because it says when she took a bite of that fruit, all she had to do was turn and hand it to Adam. So he's standing right there. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know how he's zoning out, but he's standing right there being lied to, saying nothing, just letting Eve go on, and he's saying, yeah, God said that. Let's go. If Adam and Eve who were perfect knew God in his fullness could stand face to face with him and not be destroyed. We're able to have daily conversations and afternoon walks with God. If they in their perfection with no guile, no sin, if they, when they misspeak on behalf of God, are now able to be deceived, what makes you think that we'll be able to skate through this just saying whatever we want? That is not to shame you. That is not to embarrass you. That is not to cause you any concern and make you feel like you're a bad Christian. That is to let you know that there is such importance in what you read in the Word and then what you speak from the Word so that you can enjoy the fullness of God. It's not that you're a bad Christian. It's just we've got to be careful what we say. We've got to be careful how we interpret the Word. We've got to be careful how we apply the Word. We've got to be careful how we speak the Word. And so now today we come to this church lie. And I like this one a lot. Just follow Jesus and everything will be okay. Isn't that your favorite one? Isn't that just fantastic? Haven't you ever heard that at a conference or a preacher? 
everything's going so well, or even just some speaker or a TED Talk that might be a little bit more Christianese than most things, they just start talking about how wonderful Jesus is, and he is, and how powerful Jesus is, and he is, and how magnificent, and he is, and how he's done all these things, and he has, and all those things are true until they introduce this little phrase at the end. If he's that great, then just follow Jesus, and everything in your life will be okay. And then we live. And you want to know what happens? We can't live with the, with the cognitive dissonance that's happening right there. We can't survive with it because we've heard from the pulpit or we've heard from a preacher or we've heard from someone who is wiser than us in the word who loves us, but they ended up misspeaking. If you just stay close to Jesus, everything's going to be okay. If you just stick close to him, if you never waver, if you never stray, if you never go to the right or the left, but you always stay right, everything in your life will be okay. And all of a sudden life starts spiraling out of control and life gets hard and we cannot survive with the cognitive dissonance there. And what ends up happening is one of two things. Things. Either I must not be a very good Christian if all this chaos is happening in my life. I must not be a very good, I must not love Jesus as much as I thought I did. I must not be as close to him. I must be messing something up in my life for all of these things to be happening because they said, and they know Jesus a lot more than me because they've been a Christian longer than me. Or the preacher said, even though he's not been a Christian longer than me, maybe he studied the Bible more than me. Or someone who loves me said, as long as I stay close to Jesus, everything will be okay. And everything's not okay, so I must not be close to Jesus. You want to know what ends up happening right there? Satan gets to weave his way in and said, I thought you said you loved Jesus. I thought you said you wanted to be close to Jesus. I thought if you were close to Jesus, everything would be okay. You must not really love him. What a terrible person you are. What an awful person you are. You want to know what Satan's favorite thing to do as he begins to introduce a lie? Shame. Now, you might think shame is a good thing. It's not. Guilt is a good thing. Because guilt is a feeling of sorrow over an action that has been done that causes a rift in my relationship with God. When I feel guilty about something, I can trace it to an action that has been committed that has transgressed my relationship with God, and I have a desire to restore it. That's what guilt does. Guilt causes me to run to God so that things can be restored. Shame, on the other hand, will look at an action that is committed and say, the problem's not what you did, the problem's you. You're so awful. Why would God ever want to be around you? You're so terrible. You just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Now listen, I'm not saying you're perfect, and I get we've got some brokenness in us, but shame does not seek to highlight the brokenness so that you realize how much you need a Savior. Shame seeks to highlight the brokenness and the maladies and the failures of your life so that it can drive you away from God. It causes you to want to run and hide from God. It causes you to want to isolate yourself from God. And so when Satan comes in, you might not even have sinned by the way and your life is going to hell it feels like nothing seems to be working you can't get a job that pays you enough so that you can pay your bills you know, no matter how much you try and love your husband or try and love your wife or try and love your kids it feels as though the relationship just continues to break apart no matter how much you pray no matter how much scripture you quote it feels as though the anxiety and the concern seems to continue to run around in your head relentlessly and will not leave you alone no matter what you do it seems as though there is no rest or reprieve and satan says but i thought if you were close to god you haven't even sinned. I thought if you were a good Christian, 
You haven't even done anything to rebel against God. I thought if you loved God enough, these things wouldn't be happening. And all of a sudden you start saying, I must be so awful. And in embarrassment, we begin to run away from God. God, I don't want to be near you. The worst part about this whole thing is, is that we're still his child while we're trying to hide ourselves. And the whole while, God is just saying, I still see you. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I wish you'd stop running from me. The worst, I've had a couple of awful feelings with Judah. Some of them were when I have punished him for something that he didn't do, and I had to go back and apologize to him when I realized I was wrong. One of the things that stands out the most in my mind, though, of an awful feeling in me, is he did something wrong one time. I don't even remember what he did wrong. It was, it was legitimately wrong. It was legitimately a bad thing. The thing about it was, though, I do remember it was an accident. He accidentally did something that he knew was a bad thing after it happened. He wasn't running around trying to be rebellious. He wasn't trying to stomp his feet. He made a mistake and broke something. And I start calling out for him. I didn't even know anything was broken. I just knew that he was in the house, and all of a sudden I didn't hear him. I'm like, well, that's not good. He's dead or doing something that's going to get him killed. That's not, and I start, Judah, and he doesn't answer me. Judah, he says nothing. Ju and I start getting concerned and worried. Okay, now I'm not hearing him. I know I'm the loudest person in this house, so I know I didn't say we're playing hide and seek. So where in the world is he? And I start panicking, and panic starts coming in my voice as I start screaming, Judah. And now my voice is getting really intense to the point where it sounds like rage. And I wasn't angry at him. I was just raising my voice, and it was lifting the roof of the house with how intense my voice was. And when he couldn't stand the sound of my voice anymore, getting worse and worse and worse, all of a sudden he comes sulking out from his hiding spot. He's already got tears coming down his face. Now, I'm breathing a lot easier at this point. I'm like, okay, you're alive. I don't know why you're crying, but you're alive. So we're at least past the worst of it. And I said, Judah, why didn't you come when I called you? And he pointed to something that I didn't even know. It was so small and insignificant what broke. He said, I broke this, and I was, I was scared. And so I ran and hid. I didn't say this, but I thought to myself, what have I done in this past week that has caused him to think that if he's done something wrong, that he has to fear me? Now, I don't know if there was anything that week that I did do wrong. I am not a perfect dad. I'm sure there are things that I have done that cause him to draw away from me. But I do know this. God never does anything that would by his actions, caused me to believe that I ought to draw away from him. And the moment that Satan sees, I thought you were a good Christian. Why is everything so hard? I thought if you loved God, everything was going to be okay. I thought if you loved God, you wouldn't have this kind of problem. I thought if you were a better person, I thought if you were really, and all of a sudden, even though I've done nothing to transgress God, maybe all I did was make a mistake. Maybe I didn't even make a mistake, but because of the difficulties, the pains, the sorrows, the trials, the troubles, the tribulations of life, and because I've Hold into the lie. I run from God. You know the most dangerous place to be as a Christian? Alone. Preacher, I thought we had to have alone time. Yeah. With God. It's one thing to separate yourself off from people so that you can go and specifically and purposefully be alone 
with God. It's another thing to cut everything off in life and then try and make the final isolation by hiding from God because you are so embarrassed. God, how could I be such an awful person that these things are happening in my life? I thought if I loved you, I must not love you at all if it's gotten so bad. I must not care about you at all if it's gotten so awful. We can't live with the dissonance that occurs when we believe the lie that says, well, if I stay close, it's going to be okay. If I stay close, everything will be all right. If I stay close, everything will be simple. If I stay close, everything will be easy. In fact, my other lie that I enjoy that springboards off this one, if it's really God, it'll come easy. If it's really God... Now listen, I understand there are some times where God's the one who's trying to shut doors in your face and make things difficult on you so that you don't do something. But that does not all of a sudden mean that every single time that God wants to do something in your life, it's just going to flow easily. Abraham, I want you to leave your family and go to the land I'll show you. Where am I going, God? I'll show you. Which direction do I go, God? That part I'll show you. And God just sends them off. Abraham, I don't want you to tell them why. Because if you tell them why, they're going to look at you like you're a lunatic. Dad, what's up, Abraham? God told me, who's God? This is the first time we got God showing up, by the way, after Adam and Eve and just randomly talking to a person and saying, hey, I want you to go and follow me. Dad, I had God. Who's God? Which God? This God? That God? I don't. God. Listen, Dad, he's a new God. The first time I've had a conversation with him, he just showed up to me out of the. I mean, that's pretty much how God sets the stage. Abraham, leave. Dad, I got to leave. What do you mean? Are you an idiot? Do you see how wealthy I am, Abraham? Do you understand all the wealth you have? Abraham started out pretty wealthy. Abraham, do you understand you have all this wealth because of me? And I set the stage for you. And you're telling me you want to leave this lush green land that has blessed our family, given us all this wealth for some random God that has shown up and told you to go where? Well, somewhere, Dad. I don't know where. but So, so, so this God has told you, leave your wealth and go somewhere that you don't even know. Yes, you're an idiot. First of all, he's got to deal with his parents, thinking he's a lunatic. Now he's got to go to his wife. Hey, sweetheart, you know how everything's really good here? Yes, it's wonderful. I'm so glad I married you, Abraham. This is the best decision I have made. You have provided everything for me. I cannot believe I married into such a wealthy family. I didn't marry you for your money, but that's just a nice perk. You have been so good to me. I know things are difficult every now and then, but this is wonderful. Yeah, we're leaving. We're what? Abraham, I've decided that I like your brother better. I'm divorcing you and marrying him. Dad, I'm leaving. Sweetheart, we're leaving. Where are we going? Not sure. So we're just going to go? Yes. Abraham? I'd be nervous if I was Abraham because every time God shows up, <laughs> about half the times, Abraham, what is it this time, God? You know that son I gave you? Yes, God, I'm so thankful for that son. It is so wonderful. You said I'd be the father of many nations. I didn't even think I could have a son. And now you've given me this wonderful son, Isaac, through my wife, Sarah. I cannot believe how wonderful these things are. All the pain that we went through, all the turmoil was worth it. God, I believe every word you've ever said to me. I have had struggles along the way, but God, you have come through. Good. Take him. Him who? Isaac. What about him? Take him and kill him.
God, you remember that promise about I get to be the father of many nations? Remember the part where you said that Isaac's the one that's going to continue the line so that I'm the father of many nations? How does many nations work if he's dead? Let him at least get married real fast, have a child, and then I'll kill him, God. Take him up the mountain now. And then we see Abraham going towards the mountain. You want to know what the worst part of this whole ordeal is? On the third day, Abraham saw the mountain. Didn't say he got to the mountain. On the third day, Abraham saw the mountain. So he still had more distance to go. For three days of traveling, he's thinking to himself, how in the world, God, am I going to sacrifice my son to you? And he's not even at the mountain yet. And he finally gets to the base of that mountain and he looks at everybody else around there and he says, leave the boy and I. We are going to go up the mountain to worship God and he and I will come back. And then he starts walking up the hill. This is his boy that he has been praying for, that he has wanted, that he has doted on, that he has been gifted by God. Each heavy step after heavy step as he goes up the mountain. Preacher, I thought if I was close to God, everything would be okay. It doesn't sound too okay right now for Abraham, does it? Everything doesn't sound like it's going to be all right as he He's the one who has to take a knife and plunge it into his son's chest or slit his son's throat so that he can bake a burnt offering unto God. The God who said, I'll make you a father, but I'm going to take away the son. Where's the father? As he goes up heavy step after heavy step, his son chimes in and says, Dad, I see the fire. I see the wood. I see the knife. I see everything necessary. But Dad, where's the sacrifice? I don't even know how he answered his son at that point. The Lord will provide. Now, if you don't know how the story ends, go read it. But I'll tell you this. Abraham does not end up killing his son. But if there was ever someone that walked close to God... If there was ever someone that could have looked at God and say, God, I thought if I followed you closely, everything would be okay. Where's the okay when without a moment's notice I have to say bye to my family? With a lunacy reason why I'm leaving them. Where's the okay when I have to go to my wife and tell her I have to take our son that we've waited 99 and 100 years for? And sacrifice him. Where's the okay as you walk up the mountain, not understanding how the promise of God is going to be fulfilled as you kill the very promise that he gave you by his own discretion? Everything's not okay. Not everything turns out all right, at least the way we mean it. I'm going to fix the way we use words here in a second, but let's start out here very quickly. Jesus says, in a moment, you're all going to be scattered. He's getting ready to go and be abused and sent to the cross. And when he's telling his disciples this, he says, when that happens, you're all going to run in fear. And then he says these very interesting words right after that. I've told you all these things so that in me, you'll have peace. You're going to run in fear, but at the same time, while you're running in fear, I'm giving you a heads up on everything that's about to transpire so that in me you can have peace. And here's the part that throws the whole lie out the window. 
in this world, you will have trouble. I wish he never would have said those words. Because when you read the Old Testament and you see Jesus missing, you see the day where you're hoping for his first coming, where he steps down from glory into the world. The whole of the Old Testament is filled with expectation and excitement and sorrow and pain and longing and desire, waiting for Messiah to come, waiting for the day that God would come and redeem Israel, waiting for the day where God would come and break the bonds of sin and shame and all of it, waiting for the day when the words of Isaiah can be filled where he says, by his stripes we were healed. Surely he was stricken for our peace. We considered him stricken by God, but he was bruised for our transgressions, wounded for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The whole of the Old Testament waits in expectation and hope that Jesus will come and set all things right. And Jesus finally comes and steps down and we think everything's finally fixed. And he says these words, life's going to be hard. It's not just going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's not just going to be painful. It's going to be tribulation. When's the only other time we've heard the word tribulation? Usually when we think of Revelation, when it talks about the time of tribulation, where the world is in such dire chaos that it feels as all hope is lost. Jesus, by his own words, says, in your day-to-day general life, you will have chaos. You will have sorrow. You will have pain. It will feel so unbearable that you will scatter in fear. These are the people following him closely. These are the people who are staying close to him. These are the people who have been with him the whole time. And let's go even further than that. If Jesus says that you're going to have pain when you follow closely to him, how can we think that he wouldn't have had pain himself? And we think that Jesus is the best. He is, by the way. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And yet, in doing everything perfect, let's have a little talk about the worst sermon ever given. He's got about 5,000 men following him. That doesn't include the women and children. All of them are following closely by him because he just fed them with five loaves and two fish. That's pretty impressive. His church goes from 12 to about 20,000 in a day. You want to talk about a time to take a tithe and offering. That's it. I'll go ahead and get this thing sewn up and we'll have enough money to do whatever we want at that point. And Jesus starts walking away and they follow him and they just had five loaves, two fishes and he looks at them. He's like, why are you following me? That's not a very good way to pastor Jesus. When you got the people following you out in the middle of the wilderness by choice, That's the time to take an offering. That's the time to tell them we're going to build a building here. That's the time where you tell them I need all of your help and support to get these things started. That's not the time you look at them and say, why are you following me? And in not so many words, they say, we want to make you king. And he looks at them and says, you followed me because I gave you bread and fish. And you felt like it gave you life. But if any of you wants life, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you'll have no part of me. And all 15 to 35,000 of them, from conservative to generous estimates, looked at each other and said, this is a hard thing to hear. And the same crowd that rushed after him in seconds left 
You want to talk about having a bad day? Watch your church go from 20,000 to 12 in less than 10 minutes. I can only imagine the sorrow Jesus felt at that time. And he looks at his disciples right after this happens. And he says, will you leave me too? And Peter just looks at him. And says, Jesus, you have the words of life. Where else would we go? See, it's not that staying close to Jesus makes all of a sudden everything in life okay. It's not that all of a sudden it makes all the bad things go away. It's not that all of a sudden the chaos of the world stops or the pain or the sorrow that strikes your heart. It's not that all of a sudden everything becomes good. It is that in staying close to the person of Christ, it literally breathes life into me. Not so that I can just say that I'm making it through. Not so that I can say I'm surviving, but so that I can say when everything around me is trying to cripple me, for some reason, by the grace of God, I'm still standing. When everything around me is trying to kill me, and I can't seem to walk anymore or even crawl through life anymore, somehow, by the grace of God, I'm still breathing. It's not about making everything good or making everything better. Following Christ is not a conversation of stop living with the world because the world is so bad and Christ is so good and your life is so awful and if you come to Jesus, everything in your life will get better and everything in your life will get easy and everything in your life will get okay. No, it's a conversation that right now when you're in the world, you're dead and now you have an opportunity to live. You're living in suffocation, but I'll give you an opportunity to breathe fresh air. You're living as though you're drowning. I'll give you an opportunity to climb in a boat of life and sit on top of the chaos. It's not that all of a sudden it stops. It is that by being close to Jesus, despite the chaos, Despite the pain, despite the problems, despite the failure, because of the grace and the mercy and the power and the glory of God, he says, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That means when the world's trying to crush me, all I have to do is climb in Jesus' laps and let the waves and the tidal waves slap against me as he holds me steady. That means when the world is trying to rip the floor out from underneath me so that I crumble, rather than falling to my death, I reach up and I lay a hold of the hand of God and he says I'll hold you while it's trying to ruin you it's, in this world you'll have pain the worst lie that the church has ever given to the world is just love Jesus and everything will be okay because what happens when it hurts it's either one of two things either I don't love Jesus or he doesn't love me The idea that he doesn't love me is never true. The idea that I might not love him, that one might be true sometimes. But even if it happens to be true, he's still overcome. So even when I'm messing it up, the worst I can mess it up. He says, I've still overcome it for you so that at a moment's notice, I might not stop the waves from coming into the boat, but I will make sure the boat doesn't sink. I might not stop the brokenness 
from entering into your household. But I will hold you together and I will heal you. And even if you do break, I will piece you back together. This is not a conversation of you don't love Jesus enough. Life simply is. And God help us that we ever believe that because we don't do it well enough that all of a sudden God loves us less and just leaves us off to the side. God help us that we've ever bought into the lie. What do I do with the words of Paul when he says, if we are heirs with Christ, then co-heirs, and we share in his suffering? What do I do with the words of the Hebrew writer? When he's writing about all the people in faith, by faith Noah was saved when the floods came. By faith Abraham received his son back on the verge of death. By faith, by faith. And then right after he's done writing all of those, then he says, and there were those who had such faith in God, and they were slaughtered by the world. They were sawn in half. They were beheaded. They were boiled alive. They were ripped asunder. They were fed to the lions. And the world was not worthy of them. What do I do when the Bible so clearly says to me, there will be times where pain is inescapable? And it's not because you've been a bad Christian. It's not because you've sinned. It's not because you've rebelled against God. No, it's just simply until God sets everything right when he's done at the end. Life will be filled with pain and sorrow. The difference is, when the world's going through pain and sorrow. The only hope they have to make through it is by running to whatever drug or whatever coping mechanism or whatever relationship or whatever broken well they can find. We run to those things too as Christians a lot of times. Please don't misunderstand. But without Christ, that's your only option. Without Christ, when you want to survive the pain that life has dealt you, your only hope is to pray that the marriage holds out long enough for you to make it through whatever's happening right now. And most of the time, it doesn't, even if the people stay together. Without Christ, when life has dealt you such sorrow and pain, the only way to make it through for just a moment is at the bottom of a bottle whether it's alcohol or pills, when life has dealt you such heartache and sorrow and loneliness, sometimes the only way to make it through without Christ is to sit in front of a computer and try and fill your mind or fill your brain with whatever lust or smut is filled out there on the internet. Without Christ, when you're so lost and broken in the world, the only options you have leave you deader than when you started. And we use them too sometimes as Christians. But... The difference is, when life deals me pain, I have somewhere I can go that I can drink deep. When I feel as though my throat in life is so dry and parched, Jesus says, you can come and spend time with me. And you can drink deep. And I will restore you despite the brokenness of your body. I will strengthen you despite the pain in your soul. I will give you rest and peace. I love how right before he says, in the world you'll find pain, he makes sure to say the first thing, though, is in me you'll have peace. It's perfectly acceptable to say, come to Jesus and you'll find peace. We need to stop this idea that though you come to Jesus and everything will be okay. 
the only way you can make that word work. Come to Jesus and everything will be okay. Come to Jesus and everything will be good. Come to Jesus and everything will be all right. The only way that those three words definitionally can work when you use them in that sentence is if okay, good, and all right simply means at least you're close to the Father. The moment it means anything else but that, it becomes a lie. 